Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant, and in today's episode, I'm joined by a writer whose books have been described as a philosophy of everyday life. He's written on everything from love and art to anxiety and airports, and now he's put marriage under the philosophical microscope in his latest novel, The Course of Love. He's Alain de Botton. Alain, welcome. Thank you very much. Alain, this is a long-awaited return to the novel form from you, over 20 years after your debut, Essays in Love. That was about the process of falling in love. Now, in the course of love, you're charting the complex course of a long-term relationship, exploring the maintenance of love over time. That's right. And, you know, it's a weird thing about fiction that most novels about love are really about the start of love or Mm -hmm. the obstacles to the beginning of love. And then once love gets underway, the story ends. Or else they're about long-term love where something catastrophic happens. Someone is murdered. There's a divorce of a violent or dramatic nature. And I suppose I was attracted to the idea of looking at love long-term where it's neither brilliant or ecstatic or absolutely terrible, but is really in the zone that almost everyone inhabits, which is the good enough ordinary. And there's a kind of fictional silence, or not silence, but quiet around this this area. And and that was the challenge for me. How can I write a, a love story about a couple that you know, is in, is in it for many decades and the reader doesn't fall asleep? So that's the challenge. How long have you been married? I've been married. I'm not allowed to talk at all about my marriage, but oh, okay. I've been married a long time. I think 13 years. Ah, oh, what I loved is that you, at one point, you said, if you get to know somebody well enough, they're all as problem filled and impossible to live with as the person that you initially fall in love with. That's right. I think one of the things that separates a mature from an immature person is really the attitude to crushes. Now, all of us have crushes, but we have different attitudes to those crushes. By the crush, I mean you're walking down the street and you see someone who looks very nice, sympathetic, kind, generous, interesting, and you instantly feel, God, if I was with them, it was amazing. And you can get crushes anywhere, on the train, uh, in the cafe, uh, on, on the street, as I say, and they're a major part of all of our lives. But how much weight do we want to give to the crush. I think when you're younger or young in spirit, you literally believe in the reality of the crush. You literally believe that there are people out there who are extraordinary, exalted beings, perfect beings. And it's just bad luck that you haven't yet stumbled upon them. But they're out there and they're in the corner table at Pret-a-Manger or they're in the library seat, etc. And all it will take is that encounter. And then you will get together with this mythic person, the right person. And it's a lovely story. It's the story that Romanticism with a capital R tells us. But it is fundamentally misleading because anyone that you could meet, however lovely and profound and interesting looking and seeming they might be at first glance is likely to be pretty complicated for one reason above all which is they're human and all of us humans are crazy in a variety a stunning variety of ways we're all trouble we don't look it and some of us are very charming for a bit but all of us close up if you were to live with anyone, you would encounter a host of challenges and difficulties. And this is the bit that romanticism doesn't really want to tell us about. But it's a fascinating bit. And we shouldn't really lose sight of it altogether. In my marriage, it's called uh, window shopping, where you can look and uh, flirt with what's behind the glass, but no touching. 
Yes, and also, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a delightful thing in a way, and sometimes we get that experience of meeting someone for a while, thinking they're delightful, and then feeling, actually, I don't really want to get to know you better because this is the optimal situation. Um, This is what this novel is, is partly about. It's about two really lovely people, but live very close up to both of them, and they are trouble in the way that all of us are. And there's an element to a long-term relationship which you might almost call humiliating because it forces you to be witnessed (laughs) by another human being so close up that you can't help but come out of it seeming pretty bad because that's just the way we are from close up. And uh, this isn't an ordinary novel in that you tell the story of council surveyor Kirsten and architect Rabi, but the events of their lives are interspersed with your commentary and psychoanalysis. Is this more like a case study than a novel? Yes, it is sort of like a case study. I like case studies in psychoanalysis where you literally get somebody's story and it's used in order to illustrate a variety of points. And, you know, I think we're a bit confused about novels in our society. We don't quite know what they're for. They're sort of to tell you a good old yarn and um, keep you thrilled. And, you know, the thriller is a major genre in in the novel. But I suppose I'm interested in the novel as a, a vehicle for discoveries about human nature and psychology, really. The character's psychology emerges through actions. And I've got no qualms in admitting that the reason why this novel exists is not because I woke up one morning and had to tell somebody's story, but because I wanted to tell a a variety of insights and ideas around psychology. And the novel was a good vehicle to do that. There are novelists who say things like, I heard a character and I needed to tell their story and I didn't know where they would take me, but I followed them and they took me here and there. And I'm not like that. I I knew exactly where these guys were going because I made them up and they were going where I wanted them to go, which was towards a variety of points of kind of psychology. They exist in order to illuminate the tricky and perplexing nature of um, psychology of marriage. Okay, let's meet Kirsten and Rabbi in an extract from the audiobook of The Course of Love, read by Julian Rind Tutt. In the early days of their marriage, and indeed for many years thereafter, it is always the same question for Rabbi and his wife. How did you two meet? Usually accompanied by an air of playful, vicarious excitement. The couple then typically look at one another, sometimes a little shyly when the whole table has stopped to listen, to determine who should tell it this time. Depending on the audience, they may play it for wit or for tenderness. It can be condensed into a line or fill a chapter. The start receives such disproportionate attention because it isn't deemed to be just one phase among many. For the romantic, it contains in concentrated form everything significant about love as a whole. Which is why, in so many love stories, there's simply nothing else for the narrator to do with a couple after they've triumphed over a range of initial obstacles, other than to consign them to an ill-defined, contented future, or kill them off. What we call love is typically only the start of love. It is peculiar, Rabbi and his wife observe, how seldom they're asked about what has happened to them since they met as if the real story of their relationship doesn't belong to an area of legitimate or fruitful curiosity. Never have they publicly fielded the one question that truly preoccupies them. 
What is it like to have been married for a while? And you brought along a number of objects to the Penguin Studio that helped to shape the course of love. And we're going to France with your first object, which is a picture of Le Corbusier's Villa Savoie. Could you describe the villa for me, The Villa Savoie stands in a green field just outside Paris, and it's an elegant spaceship-like building. The form looks like it was designed by a higher, purer, better species. It's... It's white and rectilinear and just delightfully serene. It's, it's the opposite of most of our lives and the reality of most of our lives. And I think that's why it's touching. A lot of art sometimes holds up to us a mirror of how we would like life to be, but it isn't quite. And that's why art can be moving, I think, because we, we point to it and we say, that's how I want me to be, but... I'm not. Look, obviously, it's a rationalist. He is trying to create housing and architecture that is very mathematical and precise, and he's trying to pin life down in this sort of hyper-rational way. And I've got a side like that, a sort of scientific, hyper-rational side, but it's constantly bumping up against the messiness of life. So if this is the idealised architectural representation of love for you, what sort of house do you think represents an average marriage in reality well it's bashed about isn't it it's it's one where you know the paint is scuffed is yours bashed about it is is it <laughs> it is I, I try and keep it neat and tidy are you a minimalist a, i'm a minimalist and i'm i'm permanently running around rearranging things and so you can wiping, never come to my wiping things um and but but i think that's that's sort of the humour of, of life, that, that attempt to keep the chaos at bay. I mean, it's pathetic. You know, if you see somebody, uh, you know, cleaning the kitchen table, in, in three hours it'll be a mess again. But you nevertheless make that attempt to clean it because in the same way that you try and make your own life logical and sensible and reasonable, even though we're all headed to disaster. OK, so if you came to my house, which is maximalist, would you have sort of palpitations that have to leave within five minutes? Not at all, but if, uh, if I were married to you... Um, which is a whole other scenario, <laughs> then, um, th- then we might have blows. Um, okay. But, th- but, th- but th- you know, that's the delightful thing. As we're not married, yes. um, we-, we can live and let live. So it's the tyranny of marriage to try and um, match people to one's hopes. And this is a novel where a lot of the humour comes from the contrast, the clash between an attempt to be reasonable and the messy reality of love. I mean, you can either laugh or cry through most long-term relationships and laughter is definitely the the better option but the laughter really comes from the contrast between our rational hopes our dignity as human beings and the sort of indignity of let's say the fact that you've just been arguing for two hours over whether to hang or not hang a bathroom towel um and you know and you're you're two clever people but you know this has just happened And then there's that most irrational of things, the dreaded sulk. Let's dip back into the audiobook of The Course of Love to hear your analysis of this. Rabbi has just met Kirsten's friends at a bar and is unhappy with how it went. Rabbi stays quiet on the way home, then claims he's tired, answers with the famous nothing when asked what's wrong, and once they're inside the flat, which still smells of fresh paint, heads into the den with the sofa bed in it and slams the door shut behind him. Oh, come on, she says, raising her voice to be heard. At least tell me what's going on. 
to which he replies, Fuck you, leave me alone. Which is sometimes how fear can sound. Kirsten brews herself some tea, then goes to the bedroom, insisting to herself, not entirely truthfully, that she has no idea what her new husband, who truly did look an odd sight in the bow bar, can possibly be so upset about. At the heart of a sulk lies a confusing mixture of intense anger and an equally intense desire not to communicate what one is angry about. The sulker both desperately needs the other person to understand and yet remains utterly committed to doing nothing to help them do so. The very need to explain forms the kernel of the insult. If the partner requires an explanation, he or she is clearly not worthy of one. We should add that it is a privilege to be the recipient of a sulk. It means the other person respects and trusts us enough to think we should understand their unspoken hurt. It's one of the odder gifts of love. Well, I don't know whether I should challenge that because my mother sulked for nine months before she finally got my father to divorce her. However, would you say that you're now a sort of expert on marriage and do you find yourself analysing your own marriage consciously or is this something that... I analyse everything that tends to happen to me. I must insist that I'm no wiser than the greatest fool around. Um, and I think that some of the reason why I'm drawn to analyse things perhaps more vibrantly and energetically than anyone else or than a lot of other people is simply because it gives me more trouble than, than anyone else. So I will put my hand up immediately and say, you know, I'm the greatest idiot. But I think, you know, what makes me different is I try and use the sort of folly that I see in me and in others to to try and make art out of. I mean, it's just, that's the day job, really. So, what, so you're saying that mid-sulk or mid-rant, you might just say, excuse me, I'm just going to analyse this. Um, yes. I mean, I find that there's nothing that calms me down more than analysis, than to sit down. I'm an introvert who likes to sit down in a room and take apart what has happened to me, to others, feelings, etc. I think that if I haven't had a chance to sit alone in a room and unpack feelings for quite a bit of every day, I'll get very, very unhappy slash mad. So it's a form of therapy. I just think that the messiness, the danger of living can be very importantly contained by being put into language. And it, it is a form of a kind of struggle for, for sanity against what might otherwise be very overwhelming emotions. So there's a constant kind of yin and yang of the emotion and the analysis. And a lot of what I write is, is really uh, an attempt to patiently unpick feelings that are, are bothering me. So it can be both the very good and the very troubling that, that lead me to pick up a pen. Do you keep a diary as well as your daily writing? I uh, no longer keep a diary such, but I keep a, a file open on my computer with a whole jumble of all sorts of things. And things that might have started up as a, you know, a, a scribble about, about something may end up in a book five years later. And does your wife have, have access to this? <laughs> um, bless her, she would have no interest in having access. No um, uh, but, uh, yeah. What was her response to your, your book? The, well, she was the, very encouraging. She was very encouraging. And I think, you know, the natural thing is to say, well, have you written about your own marriage? And I think that I wouldn't write 
merely about my own marriage. So I've written, I've tried to write a book about marriage as I see it, and it's through the filter of people who are have uh, got echoes of me and other people. But it's you know it really is a blend. And my wife didn't feel personally targeted or in any way overly involved. So I think to be a writer's wife is is always a uh, an area of concern. What, what um, is her response to your sections uh, about adultery and writing sex scenes? Not particularly, you know, bothered or hysterical. I mean, we have a very uh, honest relationship where most of what I've written she knows about, yeah. you know, from conversations over the dinner table. So she's not um, she's not shocked or surprised. But um, you know, she's a very intelligent person who knows what she's got herself into. So what sort of research do you do when writing The Course of Love? Is it the product of your observation of marriages over the years? This could sound rather weird, but the origin of it is an attempt to study where the phenomenon known as romanticism has got us. And by romanticism, I mean the movement that starts in the mid-18th century in Britain with a set of largely poets and then some novelists, who tell us that there's a certain way of leading your life where you find one very special person, you feel this intense certainty that they are your soulmate, you then embark on a lifelong relationship and are constantly happy. And it's a new idea. No one had really thought about that this before about 1750. And then the world was conquered by this idea of romanticism. And it's a fusion of courtly love, aristocratic notions of love, Christian, certain Christian ideas of love, fused together with the kind of bourgeois economic model. So you, you, you know, you find your soulmate, but you're also joining your finances and having children and running a household. So all of these things come together so that by the sort of high Victorian age, people are imagining, you know, boys and girls are brought up to feel that they will meet this very special person, have this very, very special feeling, then get together, go to the altar, get married, have children, be running this household unit and at the same time have this special poetic feeling so beautifully described by Keats and Wordsworth and others and that it will be terrific. And we're still the heirs of that idea and it's a it's a wonderful idea. It's also a very convenient idea to, to be able to have everything in one basket, as it were. Mm-hmm. The ideal sexual partner, the ideal friend, the ideal parent, co-parent, um, the ideal sort of economic partner in through life and it's about true probably for 0.001 percent it does exist and I, i've seen it but most people are left slightly scratching their heads thinking what about me and normality because romanticism has been able to define what is normal what is a normal relationship and this is a catastrophe and some of my motive for writing the course of love was to describe what i see as an ordinary good enough but very normal relationship that is actually quite unusual in the fictional landscape. And this book is an attempt to liberate certain things about the reality of relationships. Can you imagine what love or uh, uh, expectations of marriage and love will be in 100 years from now if you say that the, the, the present-day one is only 150 years old? Well, I don't think that boys and girls will be let loose in the world with a belief that instinct will let them Uh, survive and thrive in life because you've got to remember that most things in life we're trained for 
in the professional sphere. You know, no one would allow you to operate a nuclear power station without, you know, at least seven years of training. Love is more dangerous than a nuclear power station, by far. Agreed. It, it can blow up uh, and uh, cause infinitely more devastation. But we are not trained. Uh, we are not sent to schools for love. Uh, we should be. We don't know the basics of psychology. It's sort of out there and you pick it up, but um, there's no systematic training. And so no wonder that we make such a hash of it. I mean, let's remember the statistics. So 50% of couples divorce, and of the remaining 50, at least 25 are actively thinking about it, um, but are held back by financial worries. It's usually the 25 that are, you know, bumping along and probably have the occasional crisis, but get through it. So, I mean, that, these are not wholesome odds, and yet we continue to persist with all sorts of illusions. Your next object, Alain, is Virginia Woolf's essay, The Docks of London. Please tell me about this. Well, I love Virginia Woolf, and I love the way that she patiently observes the world, the ordinary world, and she wrote this wonderful essay called The Docks of London, where she just goes to the docks and looks at the ships and looks at the sky and looks at the clouds. It's seemingly about nothing, and it's about everything, and it's situated in that zone of writing which I love, which is the ordinary observed with unusual intensity and, in a way, generosity. Wolf was committed to the ordinary and she mocks quite slyly people who think that a good novel has to be set you know, far away with something utterly dramatic happening. She's, she's very intent on saying it's the stuff before our eyes that's the important uh, stuff and that this is what we should be concentrating on. You know, I think you, you, you look to writers who give you courage for doing the sort of stuff that you're interested in doing, but you don't know if you'll be allowed to get away with it. And she's one of the people who, over my life, has, has given me courage to, to try stuff out. Let's hear from the audiobook of The Course of Love. Here you explain why our lovers, husbands and wives, often end up on the receiving end of our anger at the daily frustrations of the world. The world upsets, disappoints, frustrates and hurts us in countless ways at every turn. It delays us, rejects our creative endeavours, overlooks us for promotions, rewards idiots and smashes our ambitions on its bleak, relentless shores. And almost invariably, we can't complain about any of it. It's too difficult to tease out who may really be to blame and too dangerous to complain, even when we know for certain, lest we be fired or laughed at. There's only one person to whom we can expose our catalogue of grievances, one person who can be the recipient of all our accumulated rage at the injustices and imperfections of our lives. It is, of course, the height of absurdity to blame them, but this is to misunderstand the rules under which love operates. It is because we cannot scream at the forces who are really responsible that we get angry with those we are sure will best tolerate us for blaming them. We take it out on the very nicest, most sympathetic, most loyal people in the vicinity, the ones least likely to have harmed us, but the ones most likely to stick around while we pitilessly rant at them. The accusations we direct at our lovers make no particular sense. We would utter such unfair things to no one else on earth. But our wild charges are a peculiar proof of intimacy and trust, a symptom of love itself, and, in their own way, 
a perverted manifestation of commitment. Whereas we can say something sensible and polite to any stranger, it is only in the presence of the lover we wholeheartedly believe in that we can dare to be extravagantly and boundlessly unreasonable. My marriage, exactly. And I, you've brought along a recording of Bach's B minor mass as your next object. How did J.S. Bach influence the course of love? It was a lovely thing to listen to while I was writing. The music of Bach is phenomenal. It's at once very emotional and very almost mathematical. I mean, there's this wonderful structure which you sense, and yet also a kind of intensity of feeling. And that, for me, is the artistic ideal. It's sort of emotion contained within uh, rationality, if you like. You, you get the emotion, high emotion, and at the same time a kind of logic holding it all together. So Bach has this aesthetic quality which I can only sort of humbly point to and go, oh, I'd like a tiny, tiny bit of that. Is this the sort of music that puts the everyday into perspective for you? Yes. I mean, it's often called transcendent, which means, you know, high above um, the squabbles of the kitchen table. I think human beings are kind of drawn to a contrast between the two registers that we have to live in. On the one hand, the pettiness of day-to-day -day life, and on the other, the fact our imaginations can take us far away and let us see and imagine great and noble things. But at the same time, we have to come back down to Earth so we can both soar and have to live on Earth. And there's a lot of humour in just this constant contrast um, where these sort of angels with leaden feet and a long-term relationship inevitably crashes you up against that contrast, you know, that the angel that you saw across um, the nightclub uh, floor 20 years ago, you know, is now uh, boiling the eggs and you've got a disagreement about how to boil an egg. And that's going to be the morning sorted for you while you articulate your differences over this. I know that you're an atheist, as am I, but Bach originally wrote this piece um, uh, as a religious work. What can non-believers take from it? Well, you know, of course, at the heart of religious belief is the idea of love, the capacity of humans to love a perfect being, God. And when you're an atheist, there's pressure on you. What are you going to do to replace that longing to love perfection? And what Western culture has done is to reroute that ambition towards human beings so that the love of God, what we used to call the love of God, has transferred to the love of human beings. And that's a lovely thought, but it's very hard to place such high expectations on the shoulders of ordinary mortals. And a lot of the troubles, I think, of modern relationships comes from, not to put it too kind of grandly or weirdly, from a secularised age where we've taken feelings that we used to handily direct towards gods or perfect beings and we've redirected them towards the people that we share the kitchen and the bathroom with and it leads to tensions. So do you think we're overly ambitious when it comes to marriage as a result? Well, we're simultaneously overly and underly ambitious. We're overly ambitious in the sense that we expect that there will be perfection and we're underambitious in the sense that we don't work at all hard at trying to learn how to be in a relationship. I mean, there's a, there's a key line in the novel where Rabbi, the central character, realises that love is not an emotion but uh, a skill that has to be learned. So we can't be led by mere instinct. And the rule of instinct is so peculiar. We, we live in a, in a world that loves to learn and to teach and where people are, are students and educators. But when it comes to love, 
We don't like the concept of education. There's a key moment in the novel where one character makes a complaint against the other and the wife, Kirsten, says, I thought you loved me and now there are all these things that seem to be wrong with me. And Rabbi, the uh, husband, says, I do love you, but I want to improve you in certain areas. And she basically says, well, bugger off. Um, uh, You're supposed to love me for who I am. And both of them feel at different points that being loved for who one is is the essence of love. And it's a very touching fantasy that's, of course, rooted in childhood, where as children we were in many ways loved for everything that we were in all our tantrums and difficulties and peculiar habits. And we look sometimes in adult love for a recreation of that. But it's very tricky and I think unfair. And we tend to respond so badly to anyone saying, look, I think this side of your character needs a bit of work. This seems to be the opposite of love. It seems to be a dictatorial, bossy attitude. But if we stand back from ourselves, all of us should be learning things about ourselves. All of us need improvement. And relationships are, in a way, the crucible where improvement could take place, but rarely does because we feel so brittle and defensive and thin-skinned. And we feel that the person who's meant to love us shouldn't in any way have spotted anything about us that needs any kind of improvement, which is blessedly unrealistic. But there we are. As Kirsten and Ravi find in The Course of Love, there are challenges to overcome when navigating a long-term relationship, especially when they become parents and their sex life dwindles away. Let's hear from Ravi as he tries to convince himself that it's only natural for him to want to have an affair. What could be more natural? than to feel an occasional desire for another person. How can anyone be expected to grow up in hedonistic, liberated circles, experience the sweat and excitement of nightclubs and summer parks, listen to music full of longing and lust, and then, immediately upon signing a piece of paper, renounce all outside sexual interest, not in the name of any particular god or higher commandment, but merely from an unexplored supposition that it must be very wrong. Is there not instead something inhuman, indeed wrong, in failing to be tempted, in failing to realise just how short of time we all are, and therefore with what urgent curiosity we should want to explore the unique fleshly individuality of more than one of our contemporaries? To moralise against adultery is to deny the legitimacy of a range of sensory high points, Rabbi thinks of Lauren's shoulder blades, in their own way just as worthy of reverence as more acceptable attractions such as the last moments of Hey Jude or the ceilings of the Alhambra Palace. Isn't the rejection of adulterous possibilities tantamount to an infidelity towards the richness of life itself? To turn the equation on its head, would it be rational to trust anyone who wasn't, under certain circumstances, really pretty interested in being unfaithful? Do you think that there's too much pressure to get partnered off and should more people be embracing solitude and a single life? I think in a world where if you're not hooked up with somebody beyond a certain age people will start to look at you in a strange way. That's got to be a really unhealthy backdrop to forming good life choices because it means that some people will inevitably be pressured into couples that they shouldn't have joined. And 
you know, again, despite all our sort of liberality, there are still very few options on the table, really. It's either, you know, this or that, you know, singlehood or the long-term relationship. That said, you know, there is a section in the novel about adultery and it's it's a sort of hot topic in our civilization. What do we do with the fact that people both want long-term relationships and they also want other things? Something on the side. Something on the side. And, you know, this has been troubling novelists for 200 years, ever since the ideal of emotional fidelity became connected up with sexual fidelity. I'm often asked, what's the answer to, you know, the marriage thing? You know, do, are you a believer in open marriages, polyamory, uh, adultery, or not? Or you know, where do you stand on it? What's the answer? And I say the premise of the question is wrong because the question is implying that there is some ideal scenario. And it sounds banal and rather downbeat to say, but you know, it's really the conclusion of, of uh, this section of, of the novel, that there really isn't any cost-free uh, situation, that open marriages have a cost to them, a cost in trust, a cost in jealousy, and closed marriages have a cost to them, a cost in longing and hope and sense of liveliness that comes and both of these are losses and it simply isn't an answer and what we have to do is to feel very generous towards ourselves for facing you know some unpalatable choices here there is no ideal solution Anna your next object is a copy of Roland Barthes mythologies can you tell me about this and why you've brought it in so Roland Barthes is another writer who gives me courage, has given me courage over the years, because he has been able to forge a career writing quite philosophical texts about ordinary things. So in the book Mythologies, there's a famous chapter where he writes about washing powder mm-hmm. and the way in which advertising of washing powder plugs into longings in human nature for the bad to be released the dirt, the symbolic dirt to be released and how there's a kind of longing for transcendence in the world of washing powder adverts. And he keeps a sort of straight face while taking us through Hegel and Kant and and washing powder. And I love that, again, that crashing. And, you know, he wrote a book about love called The Lover's Discourse, which is a a fascinating attempt to micro-analyse moments of, of, of love. And so, again, you'll... You'll be seeing some themes here. It's it's that same longing to kind of marry up the ordinary and the more intense and out of the ordinary to create a, a certain kind of work of art. Now, some academics have objected to your popular brand of philosophy. Why do you think that they are so against it? Bless them. Um, <laughs> academics in this country and really all over the world nowadays teach a very narrow definition of what philosophy could be. I'm attracted to the definition that existed really at the outset of philosophy in ancient Rome and Greece, when the idea of being a philosopher was to be something that we would nowadays call a psychologist, probably. Someone who's interested in human emotions and how to deal with them, with all the troubles that come from uh, careers, relationships, etc. And for me, that's what a philosopher should still be doing. It should be sort of unpacking our feelings, our emotions, trying to make sense, trying to guide and um, 
find some some sense in the chaos of life. But most academic philosophy is very far from this. It, it's it's taken its lead from a German vision of philosophy that arises in the 18th century from writers like Kant, and it's a certain style of writing, and it's a certain approach, and I simply don't get on with it. And that's fine, we just can't be friends. Um, I'm just doing a different thing. You know, if, if this book works for a reader, I want moments of recognition in the, the reader, that the reader will think, huh, I felt that, but I hadn't seen it like that, or I hadn't been able to condense it like this, or um, that's a good sort of aphorism for something I'd felt. I'm, I'm trying to provide a map for territory that I hope others will have gone through. Of course, there's always the danger that people will go, well, my map doesn't look like that at all. And how often do you encounter people who have fallen in love with you as a as an idea? Um, well, the, the, I wish more the, often. You're the person who sort themselves <laughs> out and you have to Sad. disavow them of this. Well, almost never. I, I, sometimes writers get together and they say, oh, you know, I've got a stalker, I've got a stalker, and everyone's showing around their stalkers. I've got very few. And I think the the reason for that is that... Until the cause of love comes out. <laughs> yes. No, I don't think so, because I think that um, I try and sound quite a realistic note in my work, and I don't position myself as someone who knows it all. I'm very, I hope, alive to the kind of vulnerability in myself and in others. And I think that, you know, the trick is not to sound like the Buddha. The trick is to actually admit what we're all like which is you know desperately in need of kind of generous assessment and uh kind of forgiveness for most of what we are and i think if you you know if you write like that you'll get a few less stalkers kirsten and rabbi's problems in the course of love stem from the fact that art hasn't prepared them for life the love stories that they've read don't match the reality let's hear from the audiobook of the course of love one last time Rabbi is ready for marriage because he is fed up with most love stories and because the versions of love presented in films and novels so seldom match what he now knows from lived experience. By the standards of most love stories, our own real relationships are almost all damaged and unsatisfactory. No wonder separation and divorce so often appear inevitable. But we should be careful not to judge our relationships by the expectations imposed on us by a frequently misleading aesthetic medium. The fault lies with art, not life. Rather than split up, we may need to tell ourselves more accurate stories. Stories that don't dwell so much on the beginning, that don't promise us complete understanding that strive to normalise our troubles and show us a melancholy yet hopeful path through the course of love. And I, your final object is something that you've described as an emotional toolbox, which is Peter Gabriel's album Us. Please tell me about this and how did he influence your novel? Peter Gabriel is a a wonderfully profound um, music maker. He's very interested in psychotherapy, and a lot of his songs are extremely honest about his own vulnerabilities. And he's he's an unusual figure in the kind of musical landscape because of his, in a sense, really his sort of maturity. You, you, you feel you're in the hands of a really intelligent person who's kind of looking at the big themes of life. I mean, we're, we're far from Justin Bieber here, although nothing wrong with Justin Bieber. Um, but, but, you know, he's he's... 
it's kind of pop for grown-ups, and um, and that's that's a very lovely thing. In the course of love, Kirsten and Rabbi go to see a therapist to help them with their marriage problems. Do you think that we should all have therapy to help us through modern relationships? Well, going to therapy is seen as an extremely unromantic thing to do. If you were to announce to a group of friends and well-wishers that, that you, as part of a couple, had gone to see a marriage or relationship therapist, the general view would be, hmm, well, they're in trouble. That's why they've gone to see that person. And like so many things, it's really the opposite of the truth. What seems unromantic is, in fact, deeply committed to love, but doesn't look like it is. I don't necessarily think everyone needs to see a therapist, and there are many therapists who are not necessarily worth their title, but it's really perhaps the idea of therapy that's important, which is a commitment to analysis of one's own emotions and the emotions that are circulating in a couple and an atmosphere of tolerant, uh, sort of forgiving discussion about them. Now, that can happen within a therapeutic setting or it can happen without, but I think we need something a bit like therapy, even if it isn't directly therapy, and, and that is a more analysed way of leading one's love life. So do you think that the course of love is essentially a self-help guide, therapy in an audiobook. You know, the word self-help is often associated with books by American writers with lurid pink covers that promise you eternal and immediate satisfaction. So it's not like that, no. But it's, it's self-help in the way that many novels have attempted to be self-help. I mean, if you think of Jane Austen, she was a Christian writer, a Christian moralist, who wanted to show through very... You know, artificially schematic plot lines, how certain characters can grow and develop to be mature. You know, she's really writing about maturity. Jane Austen's theme throughout her love novels is how to be a mature human being. And that's sort of the theme of this book as well, how to be a mature human being. So in that sense, it's got a therapeutic thing. It's trying to entertain, but it's also trying to educate. And in some ways, you know, if five couples on this planet read the book and gain some insights and the moment when they might have shouted one at one another or not have forgiven one another or something is in some ways attenuated, then, you know, I would have succeeded with the course of love. So that's the hope. You have, because already, quoting from your book to my wife of 30 years, huge recognition and light bulb moments. So, Anna, thank you very much for that and for sharing all these things with us today. Thank you so much. Written by Barney Norris, Five Rivers Met on a Wooded Plain tells the story of five people whose lives collide after a serious incident. As one hangs in the balance, the stories of all five unwind drawn together by connection and coincidence into a web of love, grief, disenchantment and hope that perfectly represents the joys and tragedies of small-town life. Salisbury Cathedral is the most beautiful building I've ever seen. I don't quite mean the look of the place. Buildings are not beautiful because of their shapes or patterns, the bricks or stones that make them. What are transfixing are the ideas and dreaming and longing they encase. They stand as memorials to the lives of the people who made them who raised the money to raise the walls, who buried the men who fell from the scaffolding. 
What I see when I watch Salisbury Cathedral cutting the air is a diagram of prayer. The hope at the centre of my life expressed as the burning arrow of the spire shot into the sky, asking us to look up beyond the everyday, see the size and possibility and quietness of the landscape, and imagine something greater than we are. It asks us to stop walking and think. It demands we look outside ourselves. I've stared at that spire every night for a year now, and I think it is the purest picture of the human heart I've seen. It seems to me from this vantage point that the city has been built as an illustration of the way all our ordinary acts, our cups of tea and walks to the postbox and phone bills and potato peelings, are shot through with heartbreaking and extraordinary love. That there exists in all of us a song waiting to be sung, which is as heart-stopping and vertiginous as the peak of the cathedral. That is the secret meaning of this quiet city, where the spire soars into the blue, where rivers and stories weave into one another, where lives intertwine. Five Rivers Met on a Wooded Plain is available now on iTunes and Audible.